Hello, uh, this is Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology, uh, introducing our December 2010 podcast. In it, we're going to discuss the invited review by Donald Redanus, Dilip Patel, and Helen Pratt, called Suicide Risk in Adolescents with Chronic Illness, Implications for Primary Care and Speciality Pediatric Practice, a review, due to be published in December 2010. It's going to be discussed by Professor Gredanus, who is Professor at the Department of Pediatrics and Human Development, Michigan State University College of Human Medicine in the USA, and by Dr. Teresa Alex Perical, who is Consultant Child Psychiatrist at King's College London and at the National Center for Young People with Epilepsy. Can we turn to you, please, Donald, to just discuss the background and the points you particularly want to highlight in the review, please? Yes, well, the the background is that those of us that work with children and adolescents are aware of the fact that there are, unfortunately, too many children, particularly teenagers, who contemplate suicide and actually attempt suicide. And the question that, that our group asked was, is there a link between chronic illness and suicide based upon the fact that we know one of the basic underlying or underpinning of suicide attempts is that of depression. And we know that approximately one-third of adolescents have some type of chronic illness. And so the question we asked is, does the chronic illness itself lead to increased depression? And would that mechanism add to increased risk of suicide? Uh, And then the other question was, we know that suicide is something which is a lifelong threat to human beings, that suicide begins at a very, very low rate in childhood and as you go through adolescence, begins to increase into adulthood and so forth. So trying to look at the different factors, what causes the suicide, and since those of us in medicine see many, many children and teenagers with chronic illness, epilepsy, diabetes, cystic fibrosis, cancer, and so forth, does that itself lead to increased depression, increased suicide? So that was the purpose that we tried to do with the study. Thank you. Um, Teresa, do you want to take up the theme, please, in terms of comments? Yes, I think it was interesting that you chose depression, and obviously the link of depression with suicide and attempted suicide is very well established. What did you find from the point of view, or do you want to summarize for, for people listening, what did you find from the point of view of chronic illness and the association with attempted suicide and, and suicide? We looked at over nine electronic databases and studied the literature over the last 20 years, particularly focusing on the literature search we did looked at articles in the late 1990s and through 2010, and that specifically focused on literature from the 80s and 90s, and we looked at a variety of surveys looking at that point. First, the literature confirmed the fact that suicide is not a rare phenomenon. In the United States, for example, between 15 and 24 years of age, there's approximately four to 5,000 people who commit suicide, and that's out of a much larger number that attempt suicide. For example, if you look at the U.S., each year over 30, 31,000 individuals between 15 and 24 die, and from that about four to 5,000 are suicides. And that's much greater than you find with if you add all all up chronic illness in general, you know, the things that cause death. So that's a concern. Then doing that literature search, we looked at the link, the two associations, or possible associations that I mentioned. And 
where this really comes from is from the adult literature, because if you look at studies on adults with severe epilepsy, various other neurological conditions, cancer, you'll find some very good data which suggests that adults who have neurological conditions, particularly where it limits their, their function and cancer, do have an increased risk for suicide. And there's just a lot of data for that. Uh, which we can talk about later if you want, but and particularly if they have a concern, an issue where they, they are impulsive, where they have a lot of pain. So then the question comes in, if that's true among adults, is that true among teenagers? And so we looked at a number of, of surveys from Finland, Sweden, Switzerland, Spain, the United States, a variety of countries. Focus at the best literature, the best studies we found have been looking at teenagers with diabetes and teenagers with epilepsy, but there are some other conditions that were were established as well. And what we felt the literature suggested was that chronic illness does increase the risk for depression. It does lead to an increase in depression in these individuals because of limitation of function, because of difficulties in considering yourself to be a normal teenager, an important drive of being an adolescent is you want to be like every other youngster. You want to be like your peer group. You want to be considered, if not among the best in your group, at least average. And so how do you do that when you have diabetes to deal with every day or epilepsy or cancer, cystic fibrosis, and so forth? And so those kids do have, and it seems to have an increased potential for depression. And the question is, does that lead to an increase in suicide? And what we found was it tends to increase depression while a teenager, and it may lead to an increase in suicide in adulthood if the issues causing the depression are not corrected. For example, there was a very fascinating study done among adults in Sweden by Nilsson, N-I-L-S-S-O-N, who looked at over 6,700 patients in Sweden with neurological conditions, and they noted that there was a nine-fold increase in death from suicide in these adults. And the particular risk factors for these individuals for the suicide was if they had an early onset of their seizure condition, particularly that is during adolescence, and if they had underlying depression. What I found interesting, obviously, the rate of completed suicide is relatively small, but nevertheless, is the third cause of death. The first cause being accidents, and the second cause in the United States, I think, is homicide. People that have accidents sometimes do have accidents because they have underlying ADHD, so they are less careful, or because they are maybe taking drugs or alcohol. So, and homicide really has to do with aggression and impulse control sometimes. So, in fact, there are all causes, the three leading causes of death in young people, are all causes that have to do with mental health. On the other hand, it would seem sometimes that uh, pediatric services are not very aware about the importance of mental health issues, or if they are aware, they don't know how to deal with it. I just wonder, from the practical point of view, what advice would you give to pediatricians and to general practitioners or primary care practitioners uh, how to deal with the issue, how to screen, what to do regarding mental health issues in general population, particularly the ones presenting with chronic illnesses? Yeah, that's a very important question. And what I tell my residents, our medical students, others in practice, 
is that first be aware of the fact that depression is common among adolescent age group. It's also common for many teenagers to think about suicide. And the best data we have, some of the best data includes the annual report of the Center for Disease Control, the U.S.'s CDC's Youth Risk Behavior Surveillance, which is done every year, reaches all the states. It's a beautiful study. And a recent study in 2007 came out and surveyed thousands of kids in high school and showed that almost 15% of them just didn't look for chronic illness or anything, just said, looked at everyone. And uh, almost 15% said uh, during the previous 12 months that they had seriously considered suicide. And over 11% of these kids had a plan, and almost 7% actually had attempted this, and less than half of that actually reached medical attention. So what I tell the practitioners is teenagers walking into your office with or without chronic illness, many of them will have had depression. Many of them have thought about suicide, uh, and a number of them have actually tried or will try in the near future and if they have a chronic illness, that may be one more factor behind their being sad, depressed, and so forth. So one of the things is that every teenager who comes into the office for a general exam or for a specific exam, if possible, should be asked, should be screened uh, by a sensitive clinician asking about whether they have had depression now or in the past, whether they have thought about hurting themselves, whether they have a plan, and I also tell them asking someone does not precipitate the suicide. That's a myth that the lay public has, even some physicians have. Well, uh, and, and I understand as a father of four children, innately as a father, I say, well, don't ask my children that. Of course they're not thinking suicide. Of course not. But that's a normal parent response. The clinician has to overcome that and say, many children contemplate this. What about you? Now, there are different techniques of how to ask, but it's important to ask everyone coming through because many people, when they are asked, get very relieved and say, yes, I have, and let's talk about it. So it's the screening, and this includes uh, the kids with chronic illness, and this includes not only the general well, practitioner. Let me interrupt for a second to say, what exactly do you ask as a, as a non-expert? What, how do you phrase it? Well, there's many ways to do that. I think it has to be phrased in a way that you're comfortable with. But if they're coming in for a general exam, you start off with, you know, the first thing coming in, in the clinic, you don't say, are you thinking of suicide? You sort of build up. You develop a rapport, a relationship, and you're asking about their general health. But then what I do is after I've established a rapport, I say, uh, I'm asking you a lot of questions because some of your friends have problems with this. And so that's why I'm asking. So I set them up in a way that's comfortable for me, and everyone does it in their own way. But where you feel you're establishing rapport, you've established a link with this patient saying, I'm going to ask you a number of questions about your health. And then I get into some questions about mental health. Once I feel they're comfortable, and I usually do this alone, sometimes with the parents, but at some point, if I'm going to ask sensitive questions, I need to talk to them alone and get their permission and get the parents' permission and the teenager's permission. But once we've established all that, that can take a while. If I know them well, if they're in my, if I've seen them since they were a little child, that makes it easier. But once you've established that rapport, I begin to ask about mental health. And you can do it a number of ways, but basically, have you had times when you felt sad? Have you felt depressed? Have you felt, and then you, or you can, some people will say, do you know any friends who've had sadness? But you begin to get at the issue that many people have mental health issues including sadness, anxiety, 
uh, does that include you? Have you had, you know, being direct questions, not, as we say, beating around the bush, as it were, but a direct one-on-one response. If they look surprised, they say, well, many teenagers do have concerns with this. That's why I'm asking. But it's a, a direct question. There are questionnaires and certainly screening inventories that you can use. There's a number of screening questionnaires. But I think in addition to that, a direct response one-on-one. So you can gauge the look on their face. You can gauge their response and then add to that if you think they're getting uncomfortable. But a direct question from depression, anxiety, to have you been depressed? Have you thought of hurting yourself? And then you go from there. If it's yes, is it recently? Was it a long time ago? And then going on to questions such as, have you considered hurting yourself? Have you tried to hurt yourself? Are you contemplating, uh, do you have a method in mind? Have you been cutting yourself? And you sort of get very specific. Do you agree with that? I think it's important to ask the teenagers, if possible, by themselves, because they would protect their parents. They don't like the parents knowing that they are distressed. So they will not say how awful they feel in front of their parents. I completely agree that you need to build a report and start to ask questions about how are they doing in general in life. And sometimes you go into the normalizing. Everyone feels sad, depressed, sometimes stressed out. How are you doing with these things? I think it's how this illness affecting your life. Are you very fed up of having seizures or having to come to hospital? I think that is a very reasonable question to ask. And then you build it up from there. I wanted to say, though, that some people do not recognize depression as depression. Um, They may complain more about physical symptoms, and that is when the physicians need need to be aware. So we have quite a lot of a number of children that are stressed out, uh, depressed, but they will complain about somatic complaints. I think pediatricians particularly need to be aware of this. I'm sure they are, but sometimes can be quite confusing. The other thing is young people, particularly males, when they feel stressed or depressed or down, drink instead of experiencing the typical features of depression like guilt, like hopelessness, helplessness. They may feel all that, but their response is to drink alcohol and so or, or take drugs. So I think... And because this is also one of the factors that may precipitate attempted suicide or suicide, it is actually important to ask. And you just sort of build it up. You just say, uh, well, how how have you been feeling about all this? Are you coping with your life? Everyone feels sad or feels stressed out. What do you do? I do know quite a lot of young people that sometimes when they are stressed, they drink or they take drugs. Have you ever done that? Obviously, there is an issue of confidentiality that you may need to work out before because if someone tells you, I am going to kill myself, I have been planning it, or something like that, you will have to do something about it. You cannot keep it confidential. So there are some issues that sometimes can get quite tricky. And I think the fact that it can get quite tricky sometimes puts people off from asking. But this is not a good excuse. You do not want to have someone coming out of your office and two months later learn that they have killed themselves or that they have been involved in an accident because they were high on drugs because they were feeling so fed up that they went out and did something quite silly. So there are some things that you may have to have thought about with colleagues, with, with other people, but we need to ask, basically. 
I think it's important that, that it's not just one person doing this, that different individuals who are involved in the care of this individual do ask and let them know that this is something that all health care doctors are and clinicians are concerned about. It's much like if you want a teenager to stop smoking, if only one person tells them smoking is bad, that's not good. But if, if multiple doctors ask that, eventually they may get the message, and when they get motivated to quit smoking, they may do that. And so one of the things we pointed out in the paper was that it's not only the responsibility of the primary care physician or the, or the general pediatrician. It should be the subspecialist. Uh, well, that's why I was asking that question about how you specifically asked for it, just because as a subspecialist, one's not necessarily expert in doing that. Another point I want to make, actually, is when you say seeing someone on your own, do you mean totally on your own, or do you mean with a nurse present? Because we're increasingly advised not to see people in their teens totally on our own. Oh, I, I'm, I meant without the parents, basically. I mean, it's, it's okay to see scuffs to people there, one, to health professionals. It's just that they may tend not to say how distressed they feel in front of their parents. Yeah, I think there's a variety of ways to do this, and it's important for the clinician to be comfortable with what fits their particular style. In general, if you have a good rapport with the individual, they trust you, they know you're there to help them, and you can talk to them alone, that's probably the ideal. However, there may be situations where the clinician doesn't feel comfortable being alone. But the main thing is if you ask a teenager in front of the parents or guardians any sensitive question, are you homosexual, are you gay, are you thinking of hurting yourself, are you, are you uh, smoking uh, crack cocaine, whatever the sensitive question is in front of the parent, what you're really saying to them is just say no and we'll move on. If you prefer to have a nurse or someone else in the office, then you have to make sure that you're in the same situation where the teenager has to trust that nurse. Why would they confess to being suicidal in front of your office personnel or a nurse or somebody? And teenagers, if you ask them in surveys, will say, I am not going to admit being suicidal, being sexually active, using drugs, whatever the sense of question is, in front of my parents. Many kids just simply will not. They'll just say no and move on. You mentioned about the risk of adult suicide for people with chronic conditions beginning in childhood and adolescence. Is there any data on how one can try and prevent that? No. I don't know there's any data to prevent that uh, that I've seen. I need strong data. It, it does suggest, as that one study I showed suggests, as mentioned from Sweden, that uh, here we have some adults who are with epilepsy, and now they're in their different adult years, and they have a nine times increased risk of death from suicide. And then why are they doing this? Well, they're specifically doing it if, they, if their epilepsy started at adolescence and if their depression. And the also other risk factor was they did not have good access to specialists. So to me that means that, and this is, again, we're getting at the issue of, of the risk for suicide in all people continues to climb as one gets older. Now, there are many factors behind that, and so chronic illness is one of those factors, and perhaps uh, not having access to appropriate specialty care is another one. What I see, read this, is that, that the individual has unmet needs that continue to make them depressed. Yes, I was um, thinking, obviously, so if someone is depressed, the first you need to diagnose the depression, and then you need to treat it appropriately. But there are a lot of factors that are linked to depression in young, young adults or teenagers. One of them is family dysfunction. So sometimes you need to, to sort of help the families uh, as well as help the young person. 
I suppose having good access to mental health professionals is something that hopefully will prevent suicide. It, um, there are other risk factors. I mean, to be quite honest, access to firearms is um, one of the risk issues and access to uh, other um, tablets, etc. Uh, so basically, if you don't have the means there, it gives you a little bit more time to think and not to do to take an impulsive overdose or do something impulsive. Obviously, if someone is intent in killing themselves, it's actually much more difficult. But I think the first issue is to identify the mental health risk, the depression. Um, there is temperamental characteristics, like people that are more impulsive are more likely to do self-harm attempts. And that also can be identified because some people with impulsive problems with impulse control have either frontal lobe damage or ADHD or other executive functioning problems. So people can learn to control their impulses. Also, techniques like solution-focused approaches to problems. Most people with chronic illness cope well, but there is a link with coping strategies. There is the emotional coping, and there is the practical coping. Uh, the emotional coping will be about talking about your feelings, talking about how you manage your distress, and also the practical coping. So managing the fact that you need to go to hospital appointments, and all these sort of difficulties are amenable to help by helping people with new coping strategies, helping people to identify their feelings, to express them in an appropriate way. So there are a lot of things that people can do to prevent depression, to prevent emotional distress, even when people have chronic illness. Many people, not all, but many people who eventually commit suicide have left uh, warning signs have left a trail. When you go back and you do a, a so-called psychological autopsy, you go back and you see, they did tell some people they were amenable. Not everyone just suddenly one day impulsively goes off and, and takes a gun and kills themselves, that they did leave a trail. Well, we're running out of time, so can I ask you first if you've got any other particular points you want to make? Just again, to, to, re, to reiterate that, we're not saying that the suicide itself is at risk of adolescence, but this, if the needs are not corrected and dealt with, the, the eventual suicide will come out. Thank you. And Teresa, can I ask please if you've got any additional points? Yes, I think all the points are very well made. I think mental health issues like anxiety and depression do deter from the quality of life sometimes even more than the illness itself. So Don is making the point that everyone involved in the care of these young people need to be aware of the difficulties and need to ask and need to screen. And therefore, I think um, that will be a first step to make young people aware that they can get help, hopefully be more able to cope with their emotional distress or their problems. Thank you. Well, thank you both very much. Um, we, we've come to the end of the time for the podcast, but I think this is fascinating. It certainly means to me that I need to go and read a bit more about how to do better. And I hope everyone else listening to it will find it uh, helpful in their clinical practice too. Just to remind our listeners that the article is called Suicide Risk in Adolescents with Chronic Illness, Implications for Primary Care and Speciality Pre-Pediatric Practice, a review. It's by Donald Gredanus and his colleagues. It will be coming out in the December 2010 issue of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. Thank you again. Thank you very much.
Thank you.